Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Lindsay Root Luna. She teaches at Hope College, and she is a research psychologist. And we talk today about anger and forgiveness, uh, but quite a bit more because, as you'll soon hear, I was in a bit of a weird uh, mental state during this episode, having just got out of an intense therapy session. So I'm not sure if I come off a little different here today than usual. I honestly, I couldn't tell during the conversation. I'm excited to listen back when the episode releases and consider if that might be the case or not. Uh, but I don't know. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll see about that. You can let me know uh, in however, whatever way you'd like to. You can reach out and tell me if I was being weird or not. Uh, but this is a very interesting and fun conversation. We, we did dip in and out. Took, took a very circuitous route, as, as uh, Lindsay described it, toward the end of our conversation. But we touched on a lot of stuff that I think you guys will find pertinent 
and relevant to your own process um, these days, just given given everything that's been going on in, in this world that we share, this sort of uh, working our way out and around many of us, this kind of dominant white evangelicalism. And thinking about also spiritual abuse, that comes up a lot with the forgiveness stuff, anger, uh, my own anger around a lot of, of stuff around the way I was raised, not necessarily by my parents, but yeah, just this milieu that we that we grew up in, in white evangelicalism, so many of us. But Lindsay really gets into the nitty gritty. We talk neurotransmitters, we talk hormone levels, we talk physiological arousal, brain sections communicating with each other, as well as talking more therapeutically about processing of pain. Um, and we even get into some theological implications and uh, integration stuff. So really great conversation. Very grateful to Sari Martin Concepcion for introducing me to Lindsay through some of the Blueprint 1543 stuff, uh, which you heard me talk about with her on the Brad Strawn episode of Integrating Psychology and Theology. So that's that. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Dr. Lindsay Root Luna, it is so good to finally have you. I was telling you earlier, I think this is the most I have ever rescheduled an interview and still got it done. So you should feel very wanted, basically, is what I'm saying. I'll take it, Dan. Thanks. So today we are talking about anger and forgiveness. Uh, And what's so interesting about that is that I just got out of, literally right before this, a pretty intense personal therapy session, which I do over, you know, telehealth these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing I uncovered in that session is that I have a lot more anger than I tend to realize, mm. specifically around the kind of religious system that in which I was brought up. To be clear, yeah. this is not really directed at my parents and their faith, they were sort of the least offenders in my religious world. But, you know, just, it's hard to, people probably could fill in all the blanks. It's it's Trump, it's parallel institutions, it's anti-intellectualism, it's magical thinking. And the anti-vax evangelical thing is just sort of like the final fucking straw. Mm. And I swore a lot in my therapy session uh, just now <laughs> way more than usual, which is actually how I know that's kind of the best. That, that's the reason that I, I don't, that's the reason I swear on this show is actually because it is a reliable indicator of how strongly I'm feeling about something, which is a good, useful piece of information. For it's a behavioral, right. It's a behavioral measure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It is like a, it's a little flag to tell you kind of, it's a little mile marker. Oh, Dan really cares about this. I swore a lot of times. And what I realized in the session that I do is sometimes I will jump straight to explanation. And in some sense, that is why I podcast. And it's why I started podcasting about evangelicals and Trump under the name Depolarize five years ago, Mm. is that rather than sit with that anger, I... Like, well, let's just like understand instead of just being angry. And I think ultimately understanding is good. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. that's a great way to go. 
but I do think that I tend to skip the step of processing that anger. Mm. And uh, so not that that's not the plan for today. I'm not, (laughs) you are a psychologist, but I'm talking to you in your role as a research psychologist, not as my personal therapist. We're not going to process my anger today. We are rather going to explain and we're going to skip over the processing part. (laughs) So this would be a bad therapy session, but I think it's going to be a good podcast. Sounds good. So I, but I did think that was like kind of crazy. I did not anticipate Mm -hmm. talking about that in therapy right before this. I was actually planning on starting with forgiveness and then going to anger. Although as I thought about it, I was like, ah, anger, then forgiveness kind of feels like more the natural cycle of things. Sure. And I just thought, what a crazy coincidence that that is how my day started. And I'm, and it's thrown me off a little bit, but I'm, I'm sure I'll Mm. catch my breath, get my sea legs. Speaking of catching my breath, let me stop talking and ask you if you have any thoughts on that as a, an entree into this conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. Thanks for sharing that. I, um, my own background is as a clinical psychologist. And so I do have training in that portion. So I think, you know, swearing in therapy is probably a good place to do it. So it can be, can be pretty helpful to uh, have a, have a spot to um, be uncensored, right? It's like a pretty, pretty helpful process. And I'm excited to dig into kind of how these things, I mean, they are real lived experiences, right? That's what I think your story just really aptly demonstrates. I mean, these things are relevant and I I like studying them because they impact people's lives. These are things that we're all wrestling with to some degree. We're all, we all have things to forgive. We all have things that make us angry and and they're worth kind of talking about and, and figuring out what's going on with people when that happens and how do we, how do we help support them? How do we help move them in ways that are beneficial for them and beneficial for relationships and society. So I'm excited about talking about it. I want to ask you about one kind of higher level thing before we, we get into the specifics. I, I heard it said really well by a guy who has, I think his name is Paul Deal. And he was a recent guest on the Bible for Normal People podcast. I think he had taught Jared back in the day or something. They had worked together. And he was saying that like one thing he came to realize as he got into integration of psychology mm. and Christianity uh, or theology, whatever, over the, over the years was he recognized something that really resonated with me too, which is that there is at least in evangelical Protestantism and probably in other forms of Christianity as well, there's a natural antipathy between, on the one hand, issues of salvation, which are generally thought of as binary. You're either mm-hmm. saved or not. Maybe you don't know, but you know, you're either going to be wheat or chaff and the salvation stuff is of infinite value, literally mm-hmm. infinite, ongoing, eternal value. Right. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, you've got this thing called, well, like wellness, health, maybe we'll call it flourishing. That sure. has more to do with your body and you go to the doctor for that, but that is of non-eternal significance and it is not binary. It is mushy and gray scale and that really was good, good language for me of like, yes, mm-hmm. that is a serious conflict that even though I've been moving more and more and more toward the mushy embodied physical stuff of my, of my body and wanting to work with people with their bodies, which include their minds, which mm-hmm. spring from their brains, which are in their mm-hmm. body, 
even though I move that way, I just always feel the tension of those two things. And really everything we're talking about today is in this second category of this is stuff that happens in neurologically to you. You know, that's where you're, that's the seat of your emotions, which is a Mm -hmm. part of your body. And there is a temptation in some circles to be like, well, that's all bullshit. Basically it's, it's all at best secondary to these eternally significant things. So whatever you got to do with that stuff, just do it like to get the first thing right and get your light switch clicked up and go to heaven. Right. So I don't know if you want to just like address that as like a 30,000 foot thing before we dive into the specifics. Yeah. I mean, I think you're onto something important. I mean, I think those, that tension between those two things creates a lot of talking past one another and difficulties in what do we think is important and why do we think it's important? Uh, And you can kind of, even folks who I think will really put value on the dimensional mushy embodied, right? It's because it either moves you closer toward that infinite end or pulls you away from that infinite end. Um, It either, or, or some folks might talk about that as being in line with, right. Or aligned with your infinite end, even if they don't think it impacts it, it it's either right. You're in concert and integrated or you're right. Somehow pulling against that. So I think that's a really helpful distinction to make certainly i don't and and now certainly some right faith traditions would say that some of these issues of forgiveness are pretty essential to the salvation question right if it's someone else forgiving us say god or right the um, atonement or whatever kind of ideas you think about but even as we think about what do i do with that i mean it's pretty central to some Christian traditions and and other faith traditions as well. So it's mushy but and separate, but it informs, I guess, sometimes. And that's maybe why people get so hunkered down with some of these questions or, or can't kind of entertain other ideas. Yeah, forgiveness is especially interesting. And, and maybe we'll find that it's a little bit of a boundary crosser there mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of this dichotomy I'm setting up because mm-hmm. it is so central as a theological question, mm-hmm. and yet it is it is a, a word we get from our lived experience. We right. forgive other people, right? And in and this life, right in now, in this life, yeah. right now, and and you know the Bible talks about God's anger, and we mm-hmm. experience anger, right? So yeah, yeah, it's not so simple, of course. And you're right to point out, like there are a lot of ways of sort of putting those two things in conversation that aren't the infinite swallows up the finite. Mm -hmm. That's probably the least healthy way of putting them into conversation, but there are a bunch of other options and, and people of faith have, have conceived of them in, in multiple ways. Um, Well, let's get into anger here. So one, one of the things I don't know much about in my psychological training is really what's going on with emotions. I know there are people who research emotions. I know that you're one of those people. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, but I'm coming from, you know, treat me like I have taken a, a, an undergrad course or two in psychology. And all I know is that people get angry and it's connected to outbursts or whatever. So wh- like, what should we understand about anger in general? Mm. 
Yeah. So when we think about emotion and theories of emotion, right, we can kind of break that down into a couple of big kind of bins or psychological ideas or constructs. So we can think about the embodied elements, the um, arousal would be some of the things that we would think about body temperature, sweat, uh, your heartbeat, right? All these things, you kind of get the idea of being aroused and kind of being activated. Anger is definitely an activating emotion, right? So it gets you higher up on that arousal scale. And then it has a cognitive component, right? It's something has happened that has made us uncomfortable, has hurt. Actually, usually it's from a place of hurt, of being injured or wronged in some way, or, or the perception of being wrong. We could maybe argue about whether that's a... Um, an absolute idea or a perceived idea, but uh, part of it is that perception of being wronged. Speaking of white evangelicalism, yeah, and uh, <laughs> perhaps being perceived as being wronged when one has not been. Mo- moving right along. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, but that that is, I, I actually would like to talk about that because there is, yeah. not to interrupt you, but the best way I think from what I have read to look at the Trump phenomenon mm. from an affective emotional lens is anger. It's aggrievedness. That mm-hmm. is basically, I think, in my opinion, the best political scientists are saying that's the best data we've got. The, the best predictor of Trump support is basically how angry and aggrieved do you feel? Yeah. And so that's interesting. Right. That's it is because, for instance, we think about Obama and it was hope and right. there was change. And then it was hope. <laughs> these are, yeah. you know, these can be arousing in a sense, but they're not mm-hmm. negative emotions. They're positive emotions, right. but they're still emotions. Obama yep. did not run on a policy platform. He ran on an emotion. Yep. And so did Trump. But it so was not Trump. the opposite emotion. It was anger right. and and being aggrieved. Uh, so that's really interesting. So the, so the cognitive side of anger, I cut you off. Please continue. That's fine. No, I mean, I think that's an interesting connection to make to our current cultural moment. I think the the cognitive piece is is that something's gone wrong and someone else is to blame for it. Or, or there is someone to blame for it. We can have anger towards ourselves if it's something that I did, right? I can feel angry towards myself if I think that I've made things bad for myself or for others. But essentially, there's a blame component when it comes to anger. If you don't feel blame, you don't feel angry, right? Like the classic undergraduate example that I give in class is that, you know, you're walking down the hall and someone like slams into you hard and you drop all your stuff and your initial reaction is, what the heck? Like what, what just happened? And if you turn around and there's some bro who's like, Hey, sorry, dude, whatever, you know, you're like, and if you turn around and there's somebody on crutches or someone with some sort of physical um, disability, and they're like, immediately, right. You're not angry anymore. You're like, Oh, okay. Like I get it. Like you're, you don't feel that like affrontedness because you have a different frame for what's happened. You're cognitively, the, the word we would use is an appraisal. The appraisal is different. So you're not, you're not angry about it anymore. You might be inconvenienced. You might be like other things yeah. might happen. You might still have that arousal. You still have the arousal. There's no blame. You have to, yeah, you, you can imagine like, uh, so we've been watching Ted Lasso. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, the Roy character, Roy Kent, you know, I can imagine, I think there are scenes where, cause he's always getting angry all the time, but there are scenes where like, he'll get angry. And it turns out it was like some kid 
or whatever. Mm, who, and then yeah. he like has to come down from the arousal, but he knows that he shouldn't be angry at the kid, but because yeah. he's so easily angered, like you visually watch him coming down from being aroused from the yeah. embodied aspect of the anger, but the right. cognitive aspect is gone immediately. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's really interesting. There's like a threshold then basically. So mm. my mind keeps going to this, you know, topic of aggrieved political, socio-political yeah. culture war stuff. But if, for instance, I'm listening to my talk radio host, it sounds like what an application of what you're saying is as long as, as long as it's not obvious to me that the culprit is really not the culprit. Mm. The the blameworthy party, as long as it's not abundantly clear to me that actually yeah. I can't blame that party because right. it is a disabled person or it is a child right. or is like right. someone clearly made it, you know, backed into me on accident or something. As long as it's like plausible that they're still the aggrieved, then I've reached a certain threshold of mm -hmm. cognitive uh, mm -hmm. anger and I can feel all the embodied stuff. Yeah. But but if that threshold drops below and it's really implausible that the person I think is responsible is actually responsible or the party, yeah. whatever, the group or person, then it just – then it has to fade away. It sort of automatically fades away. And what I'm thinking here is that might make the burden of proof for mm. aggrievement type messaging very low. Yeah. Because basically, as long as you're not blaming a child or an incapacitated person in some way, right. like, right. it's like, yeah, you know, it could be those Mexican rapists. It, you know, it really could be those Afghan refugees because I don't I don't know that it's not them. Sure. So I don't know. Am I like being am I wildly misapplying this? I think that makes sense to me. This is not my like area of specialty. I think yeah. way more about the interpersonal than I do. I think you can apply this culturally and at a, at a larger yeah. sociological level, but it's not where I spend most of my time thinking. So what you're saying makes sense to me, but I can't like, you know, give you a thumbs up. Let me bring it into the realm of, of spiritual harm and abuse at a more sure. interpersonal level and yeah. zoom in. So yeah. uh, let's say you have a narcissistic and at least somewhat abusive head pastor mm -hmm. and someone else in their congregation, maybe in leadership criticizes him. Yeah. And the way that the system of the church deals with it is they scapegoat him. Mm -hmm. They paint him as the bad actor. And the pastor is now speaking from the pulpit uh, in his aggrieved state about how this guy is responsible. And he was talking behind our back and he was sowing discord in the church and his wife was yeah. gossiping and whatever. It's like, if you're one of the people that knows that guy well, yeah. if you know him well enough to know that that's not the story, then you're not sure. going to buy that. But if you right. don't know that guy, then if, if the pastor is good at arousing you to yeah. anger in an embodied way, you just need a certain threshold of plausibility for mm -hmm. that it to actually be that guy's fault. That's the same question, but in a, yeah. in a less esoteric example. Am I getting it? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think this is why, I mean, emotions in general are sort of contagious. They have a contagion sort of yeah. element to them and anger is certainly that way. And so 
Um, we get angry on our friend's behalf. We, or our yeah. partner or, you know, our child, someone harms my child. I am angry about it. It doesn't have to be personal to me. And so you can, this is mobs and this is right. All like arousal is very contagious. And, and, and then it is actually remarkably easy, way easier than we would think it would be to translate between two high level arousal emotions, right? This is why you get say, violent mobs after your team wins, you know, whatever championship, right? Because everybody's at an high emotional state and then it's actually quite easy to flip into another. Yeah. Elation to destruction, basically, or whatever. Exactly. Destructive anger. Oh, wow. You got it. That's so interesting. Well, I guess I'm thinking of it like, let's say I'm Mark Driscoll or someone in a similar situation. Sure. And I've got some damage control to do because Mm -hmm. let's just say- Hypothetically, I have narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> Hypothetically, I would know, but yeah, right. uh, we yeah. can't. We're not gonna. We, we can't would, diagnose I've him. I've never met him. Right. Nope, nor have I. But let's say I did, and so no amount. Like I'm not actually going to apologize. Like that's off the table. So the only options available to me in this hypothetical situation are yeah. to like maintain my own image, and so mm-hmm. I can either say, you know what, congregation. I am actually in the right here and I will prove it to you through a months long impartial third party observation and report, which will methodically check everything. And you I, trust me, you guys will be satisfied by the end of this that I really was wronged here. Like that's a high burden of proof that would mm-hmm. require people to be invested in the mm-hmm. ongoing investigation, read the report come to a congregational meeting, whatever. That's the bar. But if I can transfer my anger and aggrieved feelings to you because I'm a charismatic leader and speaker, and you already have a bunch tied up in me anyway because you come to my church. Now I've got a low threshold. And as long as you're not one of the 5% of people that really know that guy, then I'll probably get you to stay on my team. It's like, not only is it one tenth of the work, it doesn't expose him to the possible to, to bringing yeah. in a third party to, to possibly see some bad stuff. It's sure. just like I'm just I'm getting some cool insights, I think, into like, why does this mechanism work so well yeah. for these aggrieved, abusive leaders? And of course, it's not only pastors. This would be any leader right. of any company. I mean, you you sure. see it all the time, right? Like this is Harvey Weinstein. This is just anybody. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Emotions are really a very powerful motivator, right? They don't explain it. You talked earlier about wanting to explain things, right? Emotions aren't really good at that, but they are really good at moving us in some direction. And the emotion itself doesn't help us know what the right way forward is, but it does. It's hard to stay still with a, with a high, big emotion. Yeah. So if they're opposite like that, uh, just put on your clinical hat for a second. Is that like a piece of evidence that I really am avoiding feeling and processing my anger because I'm going to something that is it's sort of opposite affectively? Well, 
you know, Dan, that's interesting. When I was, when you were talking about, you know, wanting explanation, I was sort of thinking about narratives, right? I was thinking about the importance of putting things into a narrative that makes sense and how important that can be in a process of moving forward. And, and it does help us resolve strong emotion. You can probably bypass it. You can probably skip it and go, go there a bit too fast without really reckoning with or recognizing kind of the full extent. I mean, that's part of trauma therapy is about kind of going back and actually looking at things in a way that helps you kind of put them in their place so that they aren't kind of on the shelf and showing up when you're not expecting them to um, is one way I sometimes talk about it with folks. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, an area that I am currently training in, in a Mm -hmm. a cognitive processing model of, of trauma Mm -hmm. work I'm kind of operating on that a little bit as I talk about my own Mm -hmm. anger stuff that like, that's why it's important for me to process it because basically like my, my therapist was like, where does that anger go? And I was like, you mean besides my eczema that just like roves around my body (laughs) and picks a new spot on my leg for me to itch. It's not like insane eczema. It's I'm sure people have it much worse, but like, I mean, literally it goes there. Uh, where, yeah. And then the question is like, where else does it go? But like, it goes somewhere, you know, right. or it goes to avoidance behaviors, mm-hmm. which might affect my marriage or my friendships or my yep. parenting, you know, or my school. Your physical health in some other way. Exactly. Or right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It goes somewhere. And and the cognitive processing model of trauma is 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 so interesting in its in its elegance and simplicity of basically just like the kind of core mechanism is like, you got to dig it up and sit with it. You have to work through it. And if you don't, it's like a log jam in your system Mm -hmm. and it produces all these symptoms, including the main PTSD symptoms, for instance. Right. And I just find that to be such a fascinating approach. Mm So let's talk about anger a little bit in that context. So anger as something that has to be felt. Um, Mm -hmm. I know when, when I uh, heard you give this awesome lecture through that blueprint, blueprint 1543 thing that listeners remember when Sari Concepcion was on to talk about that, you talked about the productive use of anger. So maybe this is Mm -hmm. a bridge into sort of like anger, not as a taboo, but anger as like a necessary and and sometimes useful tool. Sure. I mean, well, in the face of injustice, one might think that anger is the appropriate response. I've worked with, to to continue in sort of the clinical vein, I've worked with folks who just don't feel anger because they don't see themselves as worth kind of getting angry about, right? Like, you, you can harm me. I'm not really worth very much. Like, it doesn't really matter, right? So they don't have that response. Or because they have more of that alexithymia, they're not in touch with their own emotional experience. And we look at that and we say, well, wait a minute, that's not quite right either, right? There's, There's a balance here. If someone harms an immediate member of my family, let's take like a really intense interpersonal harm. If someone I love is murdered, like there's some anger that probably is appropriate in that situation. Now, what isn't maybe as clear to me as a researcher or as a person of faith, right, is how long do we live? Like, where does it go, right? How long is being angry the predominant experience? Yeah. So it's, it's an important part of the experience, but there's no set expiration to me. Yeah. That seems like in principle, empirically answerable. 
at least within some sort of range. Like maybe mm-hmm. we don't have the tools mm-hmm. yet, but like mm-hmm. someday you you should be able to measure like how much yeah. cortisol, you know, which I believe is secreted when you're angry, right? Sure. Oh so yeah. How much stress co- in general. Yeah. Yeah. The stress hormone. So like how much cortisol, like at what levels is that detrimental? Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. at lower levels, it might kick some stuff into gear. I don't, you know, I don't know yeah. exactly. Well, cortisol is great in the short term, right? Just sort of like adrenaline, but living in a state of high adrenaline, high cortisol, you get, you know, issues at the hip. Like, so if you're depressed, for example, cortisol is high. So yeah. that's not a super arousing emotion, right. but it is a super negative experience. Right. Cortisol is high. The hippocampus shrinks. Well, that's not great. We need our hippocampus. It helps us create memories. It helps us pull, you know, this is really an essential component. So yeah, there's some really negative downstream effects. Now, all the psychophys stuff gets a little complicated because everybody is just like the brain scan stuff. Everybody's brain's a little different. Everybody's physiology is a little different. So you're probably right that over time we could figure out kind of a range of normal, but we're, as far as I know, we don't have that data can yet. We don't have the, it's not quick and cheap enough to measure those things, you know, but yeah, you could imagine (laughs) 50 years from now or something, there's a, some good sense. So this brings up a, a topic for me that like, I just keep coming back to and I come back to it. I first uh, discovered it in college when I was a philosophy mm. major and it's, it's the Aristotelian idea of sure. virtue as the golden mean between right. two opposites rather than virtue as like, you know, a thermometer, like in a fundraising thing that you just want to get to a yeah. hundred. More so is just, always better. Yeah. More right. charity, more temperance, yeah. you know, or whatever. Sure. Right. It's more like cowardice on the far mm-hmm. side, mm-hmm. foolhardiness on the other mm-hmm. side, and the middle is courage. That's my favorite right. one to use as an That's example. That's a good one. And you're talking about anger here as yeah. like, you, you know, alexithymia and then maybe some sort of cyclothymia or whatever on the other side being uh, to let me (laughs) decode that language. So on one end, you've got like, I don't feel anger at all because I'm not even worthy of being aggrieved over my own self sad. And on the other end, you've got this world is so all the time. And you're just constantly feeling angry about everything. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you know, this is the uh, Roy Kent, at 11 all the time example. And then you can't get anything done. You can never calm down. You can't have relationships. And then what's in the middle? Well, that's the golden mean is like, you feel them enough, but you process them and don't, they don't linger forever, but you do feel them enough, you know? So Mm -hmm. like, this is profoundly, it's a profoundly meaningful model when it comes to integrating this stuff with theology of any kind or ethics of any kind, right? Normative statements about what is good, what should be. And I'm wondering if you, where you find yourself on that general sort of Aristotle approach, which I believe is from the Nicomachean ethics, which I have not read. Yeah, right. But uh, I find that super plausible and it just keeps coming up for me. What do you think about that idea? I think it's really interesting. I mean, I I think there's definitely a lot that we could I, I love to be in dialogue with philosophers. I'm definitely not a philosopher. And I Nor find, I. Yeah. right, I just find it so helpful for the way that philosophers think about these things and to create a much more meaningful 
robust sort of set of definitions. And it'll, you know, psychology is loath to really prescribe what the best way to be is, right? right. We are willing to say, oh, that's getting in your way, right? <laughs> like that's about as far as we're willing to go yeah. in terms of functional impairment. And so, uh, but that doesn't really help us too much when it comes to like a flourishing society or a, a, a whole group of people that live super well together. So Positive psychology, though, is trying to remedy that, right? It's it's Some. it's a it's attempting to at least focus on virtues, goals, strengths mm-hmm. to to begin to have a, a framework beyond simply, well, this is impairing, this is causing distress, this is a negative symptom. To like, well, what kinds of things are in a good life, and and then of course that then prevents negative things. It's like preventative care. Uh, so it's still tied back. I think the the difference or the distinction really for me is that even among the majority of positive psychologists, it's up to the person to determine what, what the good life is for them, right? Yes. There's still sort of a privileging of the individual person and my own perception about what is my character strength or what should I be living into, right? And that is very different than a philosophical idea about what it means to be have good character, right? Which would be a more Aristotelian way to kind of think about things. So yeah. this, I mean, you asked about the golden mean and I went somewhere else, but no, I, I like, I, it's great. I'm <laughs> always down to go there. I, I have one thought about that before we go back to the golden mean, which sure. is, yeah. there is, there is one way to sort of split the difference there that I have read and seen, which is to go pretty Carl Rogers, um, who I've mentioned before on the show, you know, he's the He's the one who coined the term unconditional positive regard, this like incredibly important, uh, really, frankly, completely necessary ingredient of any sort of therapy work that people feel accepted by the person that they're working with. But you could go Rogers and say, you could claim that actually unencumbered people will pick good things, generally speaking. And I would, you know, and that, that is intention with some forms of Christian theology, certainly some forms of reformed, like more Swiss Calvinist forms of reform thinking, maybe Luther, depending on, as I understand it, depending on how you read him, certainly where they would say, no, 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 no. People do not choose when they're unencumbered good things. They choose sinful things. They are totally depraved. Although you could still then go, okay, well, Elect Christians, when unencumbered, will through the Holy Spirit <laughs> tend to choose good things. For I mean, you could get around it, but but that is one way to sort of to try and split the difference is to say, yeah, unless people have serious psychopathy of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. Unless people all have antisocial personality disorder or they have like something really messed up with within their brains that is not their fault they will tend to choose things like committed relationships, involvement with their children, personal friendships, not, you know, just like screwing people over that when they're not aggrieved, when they're not hurt and not just licking their wounds and whatever, Mm -hmm. then they will, they will choose to love their neighbor. Essentially. I don't, the jury's kind of out on that for me, but it's an interesting way of doing it. Yeah, if you take a, a very humanist approach of what human nature is and what it what it is in its best state, then you can get closer. The problem is Rogers would say most of us don't get unconditional positive regard, right? This is where right. all of our pathology comes from from Rogers' view. So my my instead of being 
unconditionally valued. I received conditions of worth from my parents, from my church, from my school, from my friends. And now my personal automatic tendency towards growth and self-actualization is hijacked by my desire to receive, right? That regard, but it's based on this conditional process. You value me when I fill in the blank. Yeah. And so then I start doing that and then that that stops me, right, from growing. So even if I have this really positive view of human nature, very few of us, I mean, we we all come out with some baggage from our parents and our upbringing, even the ones that work really hard to do, you know, things really, really well. So it gets it gets tricky, but let's stay here for just a few more minutes sure, because that's fine. That lights up stuff for me around grace, like mm. like God's like mm. unconditional positive regard is a soft way of putting it, but a pretty <laughs> damn good description of my yeah. best prayer experiences. Yeah, I mean it, it goes beyond that. It's more I've described it as like being flooded out of a reservoir of joy, mm. but mm. That's beautiful. but total acceptance is yeah. a part of that feeling. Like totally, I I know I've told this before, but it was when I was able to acknowledge that I am theologically liberal finally to myself, not just publicly. <laughs> was right. once I felt that in prayer, and I was like, oh, I'm like fully loved. Like mm. I'm not, there's no way that God feels this way about me. And I'm like way off and in sending people to hell at the same time, mm. like that would, that does not line mm. up. Why mm-hmm. would I have this experience of total acceptance and mm. joy and love and the freedom that came that has come from, you know, a handful of those experiences and then little glimpses in my everyday life that remind me of it mm-hmm. is tremendous in a way that I I can imagine that working very similar for people in a therapeutic or mm-hmm. you know friendship community type of a setting of mm-hmm. having that kind of unconditional regard. And also it seems like, oh, this is just like an embodied, like I had never had a conversion experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure. we shouldn't take a rabbit trail down the very interesting little bit of work around the fact that like people who have healthy attachment tend to not have those experiences. I Mm. did grew up in a pretty healthy Christian home, didn't have a need for such a conversion experience. And so I always, I had unconditional positive regard for my parents, but having that from God was like, Oh my goodness. Mm. This gives me so much permission is partly where the name of the podcast came from and, Mm. and, and whatever freedom and all that. So that feels like this is what people must experience when they have conversion experiences. Like it's got to literally be mm-hmm. the same neurotransmitters. I mean, it has to be, uh, or some similar cocktail. It is a similar experience people have. I'm having it. I feel unconditionally accepted yeah. by God. Yeah. And isn't that moving me toward unencumbered following of God? Like, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm tipping my hat that I think there's quite a bit of meat yeah, there that's cool. and it's very theologically satisfying to go mm-hmm. down that route for me and, and sort of mm-hmm. tantalizing even. What do you, what do you think about that? And it's okay if we disagree. Also, I realize I'm talking way more than you and you're saying much more with much fewer words. <laughs> I wonder if that is a result of my aroused state after my crazy therapy session or I don't know why, but you're just yeah. schooling me on on <laughs> concise communication today. 
So props. Well, th- thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, Dan, that's really interesting. I mean, I think you, you were talking about this. I, it makes sense to me that kind of the receiving of grace, right? Um, for you, the way you described it, you may say you never had a conversion experience, but to some extent you are describing one, even if right. it's not like to Christianity exactly. per se, right? Sure. It's to a, whatever lived embodied experience you're having now. Uh, and Definitely. so- that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think, yeah, the I, I, there's got to be a lot of dopamine involved there. That's the, <laughs> that's the yeah. best explanation you, I have on that. You know what? It's the same feeling of it's the exact same feeling as when my son was born, though. Yeah. And right. is so isn't that some? Doesn't the husband get a little oxytocin as well? The the father. Oh yeah, I'm sure there's oxytocin right? involved. Whatever that, in that. cocktail Oxytocin's is. a weird one though. It does okay. all kinds of things. All kinds like, of things. Yeah. You think oxytocin would be all about like feeling really connected, but actually like some, there's some super interest. So we're not to forgiveness yet, but there's this really interesting research about, you know, you think you're going to give oxytocin people are going to be more forgiving. And like when someone's been harmed and you give oxytocin, it's like an even deeper betrayal. And they're like, Whoa. no, I can't forgive you for like they, it wow. actually impairs the process because I'm feeling so bonded to you. Yeah. And the fact that you have hurt me oh. has injured me so deeply. Right. So it is a bonding element, but yeah. also, yeah, it's very interesting. Things are more complicated than we think, right? Yeah, yeah. no, that's really cool. But let, let's use that as a bridge. So I have a colleague, Heather Natterstadt, and and her work, her research is on intimate partner violence. Mm. And so I want to, I'm excited to take that to her and, and chat with her about that. But it, yeah. she finds a lot of connections between her work and my work on spiritual harm and abuse. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's where my mind is going of like mm-hmm. the level of the bonding yeah. Is the multiplier both positively and negatively? Absolutely. Yes. Right. So both, both before rupture and after rupture. So mm-hmm. this is actually, for, this is what I always say is that is the worst thing about spiritual abuse is that it can preclude people from their faith community, which is one of the best sources of healing. So if you have more oxytocin, you have more bonding with your community after you've been abused, Mm -hmm. then the power of that community to help you grow to have post-traumatic growth is increased. Mm -hmm. But conversely, if you have a lot of that feeling, if you were really into Mark Driscoll before everything went down and had maybe a personal thing with him and he had let you sleep on his couch for a while well, you're going to experience the implosion of the church more strongly than someone who just sat in the pews, right? Right. So it's like, it's very connected to the, to the spiritual harm and abuse stuff. It's really, you're, you're just kind of talking about the sort of the neurochemical level of that whole thing. Right. At least some of the, what we can access, right. In terms of what we know, those relationships. Yeah, exactly. We still have, it's, it's worth saying like, our tools of understanding brain activity mm-hmm. are very primitive still, yes. as I understand them. Yeah, I think that's really true. We're working with hammers and, and machetes more than scalpels or yeah. lasers. It's yeah. like, oh, 
this whole area is lighting up. Okay, cool. That's like saying like, it kind of hurts in my knee or whatever. Like, well, and, and what's so different about the brain, right? Is like your knee, like we know all the parts and if something breaks, yeah. like it's that one specific thing, but the brain is so amazingly integrated, right? So we don't, we, we used to, when we thought about memory, we used to talk about like grandmother cells. Well, your memory of your grandmother is not connected to a cell, right? It's right. like through your whole brain, through like, because because your brain evolved, your brain has a pro- processes all the different elements of your grandmother in different ways. So they're all connected, right? The way she smelled is in a very different region of the brain than how she looked or the facts you know about her. Mm. And so it's all mixed up together, which means things are complicated. How, like, we're talking about arousal, we're talking about yeah. neurotransmitters and hormones, cortisol, dopamine, whatever. Mm-hmm. If, if the, if the brain imaging technology is hammers and machetes, what's the level of technology for those, le- for those, um, levels of description? Same. Okay. <laughs> about, I would say, I mean, because we also have like problems with the blood brain barrier, like really knowing how much of a neurotransmitter you have in the brain compared to getting it from other parts of the body. Like we just don't go into your brain to pull out right that. And and they're right. so fast. They're so fast acting that it is, you know, you can try to get how much dopamine's hanging out in the synaptic cleft, but you're probably not going to get a really good measure of it. And then you've got all the different kinds of neurotransmitters receptors for each one. And then your genotypes have different alleles. So we're like getting there. We're like learning all this really amazing stuff, but how it actually all fits together in a, it's, it's really, it's phenomenal. It's that's, just it's, it's a good dose of humility though, for this conversation. It's, let, let's see if we can transition from humility to forgiveness. Sounds good. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Patrons have access to an exclusive Facebook group. There's about 800 patrons and a number of those are in the Facebook group. It's an excellent place to ask for resources, to bounce ideas off of each other, to ask questions about uh, digital and real life communities. It's been really cool to be a part of that group over the years. Also, patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month. And recently, I have been responding to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast with my friend Tony Jones. And this most recent patron episode is Tony and also Sarah Lane Ritchie uh, joins us as well. The three of us have a little mini series called Healthy Egos. We've done one of those episodes thus far on the main feed, but we'll continue to do more with the three of us. Um, Healthy Egos is a nod to the fact that Tony and I both struggle a little bit with egotism and narcissism, something that we're trying to be aware of. Anyway, the three of us break down the most recent bonus episode uh, about this church planter guy, Mike Nicholas, I think is his name, David Nicholas. Now I'm forgetting. Anyway, we talk about that episode as well as we respond to a recent essay by former Christianity Today editor-in-chief Mark Galley that was making the rounds of the internet and that made me particularly frustrated for some reason. And I didn't really know exactly why. And we uh, talk about why that might be. We sort of discuss and get into that a little bit. And I use a lot of swear words. So that means I was really feeling strongly about stuff. 
in, in this whole episode, um, this recent patron episode. So if you'd like to hear that, go ahead and become a patron and you'll get an RSS feed uh, automatically that you can plug into whatever podcast player you use. And those patron episodes will show up right in your podcast player, just like the episodes of this show. All right, back to my conversation with Dr. Root Luna. So let's transition to forgiveness by way of me asking you, what is the relationship between anger and forgiveness? Because I do want to kind of tie these things together a bit. Yeah. So the way that I think about forgiveness, interpersonal forgiveness specifically, so one person forgiving another or groups forgiving other groups, Yeah, which is important, important because... Yeah. We can talk about forgiveness in a lot of different ways, forgiveness of the self, forgiveness of the divine, all those, all those things. But I have spent more time on the interpersonal forgiveness side. And how I've thought about that is it's intrinsically bound up in time. Forgiveness, you know, we talked about mushy things at the beginning, right? Dimensional things. You start at a state of um, what we might consider unforgiveness or lack of forgiveness. And if you don't have that, there's really not much to forgive. Um, we might use words like forbearance if someone's harmed you. And we do this a lot in close relationships, like partner relationships or parent-child relationships where someone is engages in some sort of minor offense and we just don't really get upset about it. Or we're so quickly moving towards being forgiven that there's really not even much to talk about there. We have moments where my son is just starting to like willfully disobey. Oh yeah, to that's where fun. He, But he's like doing it in such a funny way where it's like, he's like starts to climb on the table and he goes, no, no, no. Like he's- <laughs> Oh, he's, I'm not supposed to do that. <laughs> I know, no. And then we're like, okay, like we, okay. But like, we can barely sustain the amount of time needed to teach him something right. before we just think it's adorable. So cute. So it's, yes. it's like, we're having a hard time staying there long enough to just right. to even to teach him right yeah. and wrong. You know, it's so, right. it's just a funny example of that with a good kid. Yeah. I love that. In my own life, my partner uh, is way quicker to move towards forgiveness than I am. So he and I will argue about something or we'll be in a heated discussion. And, you know, most of the time he's like really fast to be like past it. And I'm like, okay, now I'm annoyed because I'm not ready yet. Like I'm not there yet with you. Like I'm going to be there and I'm going to be there pretty quick, but it's just not quite yet. <laughs> so yeah. there's that timing piece. So forgiveness requires time. Is, is really what I want to say. So there's yeah. this element of unfolding over time. And generally we conceptualize forgiveness as being needed after a relational breach or an injustice of some kind. So there is a hurt or a harm that's done. And, and we try, in my work, we try to think about it being a more moral in some way, right? Not just like they, someone said something to you that was, you know, annoying, but like they, it was wrong. What they said to you was wrong. Yeah. That, that kind of being a, an important piece to make sure that we're setting the boundary conditions that we're measuring what we think we're measuring. Which is uh, shared with anger then. That's a, that is a thing they share in common with anger. You mm -hmm. were saying, if you can't, yep. if you can't sustain the belief that somebody is to blame yep. for something, then you, the anger just kind of fades away and all you're left with is the arousal. And if you don't have someone to blame for the harm, you don't really have anybody to forgive. Yeah. And you're the, right. and you're, it's just going to kind of wash out. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. And, and that, whoever that is, self, divine, other, right, has to 
have some sort of ability to, they have to be an actor, right? Like we don't like forgive hurricanes, even though they're awful, right? Like we think about the divine intervention or the lack of divine intervention, or we think about, right, like the the government's failure to act in a particular way, or, you know, we do this kind of work around it, but not an inanimate object that can't choose something, right? There has to be a willful action, I think, for, for it to unfold in that way. So I think anger shows up because most often there's anger that is associated or, or, or it's like an overlapping Venn diagram, right? With like the unforgiveness. We don't necessarily define unforgiveness as anger, but when you have been harmed, anger is likely to happen, right? And then this absence of forgiveness. And in some of my work, we've defined that as, and and then lots of work, it's been defined as uh, vengeful, being vengeful towards the person that's harmed you. So wanting you know, something bad happened to me. I want something bad to happen to you, right? Avoid it. I, I want to be separate from you. I don't, I don't want to be close to you. And actually um, a lack of benevolence. I don't really want good things for you. Um, you. You could get the bad stuff and no good stuff. And that would be just fine with me. And then when you move towards being in a more forgiving state, right? That vengefulness decreases. That's actually the easiest one for us to let go of. It's easiest for me to say, I don't want a piano to drop on your head anymore. Right. And then after that, I move towards being less avoidant. Like I maybe don't want to be, you know, close to you or in an intimate relationship with you. But if I run into you on the street, like I can handle that. And then last, actually the hardest thing is to really wish well for someone to think, I want good things for you. Um, Even after after a a big harm or a hurt or an injustice. It's such an interesting time to have this conversation because of that therapy session I just had. Yeah, your personal experiences. I think that normally I'm like more on the forgiveness tack Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and I recognize that I am more on that tack than a lot of my just formerly evangelical peers. Mm. But today I'm not feeling that way. Not today, not right now. That's and right, this moment. It, not at this moment, but it's also it's also an interesting context for asking sort of a question from that camp that I think that they would be wondering, which is like, you know, do you always need to get to forgiveness where you do wish well and you are okay with being in proximity or whatever? Mm-hmm. Now, I know you're talking about interpersonal, so these are people that you have some sort of contact with a group or a Mm -hmm. person, presumably some sort of regular contact, but there's also a school of thought that says, you know what? There's also like a them, like, how do you like them apples? There's like, just kind of them's the breaks. Like that's the way life is. And the vengefulness, I think most people can agree. Yeah. Let's the vengefulness is toxic. I don't need to be sitting around plotting the demise of my enemies. That's not really helping anybody, but maybe like not being in relationship is fine. And maybe people, if you can frame that non-benevolence as I hope that you get appropriate consequences for your actions such that you might move into reality. You know, there's a way to frame that. Like, I don't know. How do you think about like, Holding off for now on the topic, which we will get to of like abusers being very eager to be forgiven, not, not going there yet, 
just like in sure. general, like in terms of like wanting people to like live in the real world and suffer consequences, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, you understand what I'm asking? I'm not saying it very clearly. I, I totally do. I mean, I think you're talking really, Dan, about the the tension between forgiveness and justice, right? Like yeah. that to some degree, right? That we might, I do Again, want to saying it reality. much more clearly and more quickly. <laughs> I think I, you know, I want you, I want us all to live in reality together, really. So I would love it if you, offender, would understand that you have harmed me and that maybe one of the consequences of that is that we're not going to be in relationship anymore. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think as a, both a research psychologist and as a, and as a clinician and as a person, right? I want to say publicly on the record, right? Concerns of safety, emotional, physical, right? Those are paramount. Those are top top priority, right? So um, I do not, and and sometimes reconciling with an offender or without a wrongdoer, right, is not possible or wise, right? And in in that case, I I think that that those boundaries need to be in place. Absolutely. So uh, there should be, I think, healthy consequences. I, I don't think forgiveness should be a pass to continue to do anything over and over again. I also think there's a difference between my holding bitterness towards you and keeping boundaries. I can, I can not have that anger, vengeful bitterness towards you and still maintain a boundary that says, but we're not in real. I want, you know what? I do want good things for you, but not with me. (laughs) Right. Like there's a distinction there that I think is worth making. Yeah. That's interesting. I've been thinking about this in the context of privilege and being, yeah. you know, a sure. white male now more or less affluent. And even before before I had any money, I had like social capital because I was in a rock band, which let me into most spaces. Totally. You know, and like, and, and really feeling kind of like, uh, I've noticed that the thing that smarts the most to me personally about mm-hmm. disagreements over any sort of racial justice question or whatever. And listeners know that I'm broadly speaking very much on the left on that stuff, but still I find people to my left or I find uh, Mm -hmm. people of color sometimes who are like, Dan, I'm not really interested in your solution ideas. You know, I've got a different thing going on here. And, Mm -hmm. and for me, one thing that's been, that I've recognized is hard is that I really want to be accepted at every table. That Uh is a kind of a privilege that I have really enjoyed And Mm -hmm. that particularly resonates with my personality, I think. Like, Mm -hmm. I think my dad also wants to be present at every table. Like, I think it's something, it's not just about being white and male. It's also just my genetics or whatever and my disposition. But it's not something that I am entitled to. It's a a subtle social type of entitlement that is, it's not about getting more money or power, Mm -hmm. really, or or whatever. It's not about... It's like a conversational sort of part of the team privilege. And it's, you're speaking sort of to that, that like you can cut that off for someone Mm -hmm. and still forgive them for doing or saying something hurtful or stupid. And then I might still be left with like a bad feeling because I'm not accepted, Mm -hmm. but I'm not entitled to that level of acceptance. Correct. I think that's true. I think that's really true. I mean, yeah. in, in the terms of like the privilege piece, that's a really interesting one, right? Because we we want to be a part of the conversation. I want to be a part of the solution. Well, yes. you know, like 
maybe that's not your role and maybe you don't get to have that role. And maybe not, that's not even because of anything you did. It's just the reality. Oh, just hearing you say that I'm getting so I'm getting sad and like, it hurts a little bit and you're just pretending to say it on behalf of somebody else. (laughs) So I know that it's, it gets at something real in me. Now we are doing a therapy session. Uh, Well, and now, but see, what's interesting to me about that is can we channel when we feel that, can we channel that for folks who really have not had a voice, right? That's us mm. in a moment wanting a voice, wanting to be part of it, right? And for for how long have folks been denied that opportunity? And can we right. then, right, like be willing to share the spaces at the table to not continually occupy one so that there's space for other people? What does that look like? Like, that's wild to me. And now I'm talking about my own stuff right now. I'm just thinking about it. No, it's good. It's, it's really hard to know what to do with that. Like, you know, for instance, with a podcasting platform or something like that, there are a few options and some of them have never yet felt like the right move for me. Like, well, I'll just like have guest hosts every once in a while that are like women of color or sexual minorities or something. And Mm -hmm. I'll not be on it at all. Like you could do that. Some people do that. I don't know. That's, that's never quite felt right. I had an email from someone who did not like the way that Tony and I were, were centering ourselves in a recent episode, Tony Jones, fellow white cis male. And I, but I, I wrote to this person said, you know, you should check out these four or five other podcasts, like, you know, that are by women, people of color, whatever that are good podcasts. And like, that's another, like, softer thing. Yeah. It's like, I'll do my thing, but like, I'll make sure to lift up other things that exist. That's right. Um, Link and those still, things. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm a, uh, listen to those things myself and, and, and absorb those perspectives, you know, and I don't know that that's an open question for me, but it is, mm-hmm. it's kind of reopened, I think in a way that it was able to be closed because like COVID distracted me from some of that stuff for a while. <laughs> uh, just another, another, piece of personal stuff. So, okay. But I wanted to, so let's get brass tacks here about emotions. I mentioned to you, as you were saying, maybe you're not, we don't want you at the solutions table, even saying that back about you saying it back. I feel a little something. So what's going on there. I'm feeling an emotion there. And, and therapeutically you and I agree. Ah, if our client says that we want to delve into that, but what's going on in me, like, from an emotion researcher angle, mm. like w- describe that, how you see it. Why is that something that I should follow up with, with my client or, or journal about for myself at the sort of whatever biological, emotional, n- neurological yeah. level? Why, what's going on? What door is being opened? What is being jarred loose? Like, how do you think of it at a, at a granular level that I don't have access to? Cause I don't understand this world the way you do. Sure. So, so I would think about what's happening neurologically, what memories or desires are being activated, right? That's kind of pulling at those emotion centers in the brain. So, you know, the, the brain is really interesting because it is integrated, but it's leveled. So like we have sort of the hindbrain, the sort of really core kind of basic processes that keep us alive. We have sort of the midbrain, which is more the emotional side of things. And then we have more forebrain, which would be considered evolutionarily younger um, and more the cognitive kind of thinking capacity pieces. And that's sometimes we have trouble accessing those emotions because sometimes that forebrain and midbrain don't 
really communicate as clean, right? The way the tools that our forebrain cognition uses are they, they make are trying to make sense of what the rest of the brain and the body is doing that is more heavily controlled. This is a pretty simple way to say it, right? But yeah. it's more heavily controlled by that midbrain kinds of pieces. And so, you know, the the parts of your frontal lobe that are connected with executive functioning and the tension and control and the insula cortex, which is connected to social stuff, right? The cingulate, those are all kind of then feeding down through say the, the vagus nerve. And then that's enervating the heart in a particular way. And so when those emotional reactions are triggered, you've got these cognitive pieces, but you also have the hippocampal memory emotion stuff happening in the limbic system. And all of that is connected, but not necessarily in a way that you can cognitively grab onto right away. So when you're like, oh, I feel that, like, we're like, well, let's think about that more intentionally because it's probably not immediately accessible to you, but your body is telling you something. There's a connection there that's happening can we then use some of those cognitive capacities to make a narrative around that, to help us understand where that might be coming from, to help that put that in its rightful place so that it's not kind of making you butt into conversations that are then actually working at cross purposes to the ultimate ends that you have, for example. So is this like saying that the moment in therapy or in a conversation where you have that revealing emotion mm. is like the front of the house and the back of the house, which normally aren't on speaking terms are finally agreeing on something for the evening's meal. And so like, we're going to, we're going to strike while the iron's hot, basically another That's really an interesting to, analogy. Yeah. To right. mix You've my restaurant images. Yeah. There. I like uh, it. You know, like normally uh, the chef is is yelling at the maitre d' and the staff manager or whatever. But like tonight they're like, they're totally simpatico and they're communicating really well. So like tonight's the night to talk about these things, like all the changes that need to go, that need to come to make the restaurant function more fully because we're behind on these things. We got to update the menu and like we should do it while they're talking. Because normally we don't have ac- they don't have access to each other. They don't always have access to each other. Is yeah. that I think that's uh, right? I, I like it. I, I I think it's fair. I mean, I think some of that is just helping people be more in tune with what's going on in their bodies. Being more in tune with what's going on in the back of the house makes the restaurant run better, right? So so if normally you're a person that now and folks can kind of tend to be in one place more than the other, right? Some folks, yeah. they're all up in their feelings all the time and other folks can hardly ever get there, right? So yeah. it is about facilitating that connection and balance. So it might depend on the person to some degree. Right. Oh, for Especially for cognitive folks like me, yeah. right. the, the moments of intense feeling are really mm-hmm. worth paying attention to. Maybe you could say for people who are primarily feelings, like moments of cognitive insight are worth paying attention to. I I mean, I don't know if it works that way. I don't know either. Um, I haven't thought about it like that. I I think it's a worthy hypothesis to explore. I mean, I, I think generally it's a really great thing to be curious when we have a strong feeling because it can bring some insight and help us relate better to ourselves and to others. Right. So I I guess there's sort of two, two separate benefits as I listened to back to you respond to my front of house, back of house analogy. The benefit I was describing is like a strike while the iron's hot benefit of like, Hey, now's the time when that connection is there. Okay. We've got, we we're trying to, 
we're basically always trying to utilize neuroplasticity to create new habits of thought and behavior sure. and feelings, right? That's new experiences. Yeah. Yeah. To become more the kind of people we're trying to become. That's the, we're trying to rewire our brain. And so, hey, everything's kind of connected. We can get some better rewiring done right now Mm -hmm. or something like that. But the Mm -hmm. other benefit that you're alluding to is more of a general mindfulness benefit, which is which is why there's a mindfulness element to like any almost any piece of homework I ever give a client. It's (laughs) It's like, I just want you I, I want this for myself, too. I just want you to get better at like noticing when you're feeling X or when you're, you know, it's, it's always like come back with two or three examples of something that you noticed throughout the week and it starts as homework and they have to remind themselves to look for it, but then eventually Mm -hmm. they start to notice it without being reminded. And then that's when you've built a skill and you're building a mindfulness skill. It's just a basic awareness of what is going on in your body, which includes your brain. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and actually what you just said really reminded me of a very Aristotelian way to think about growth, right? Please do. So, yeah, I mean, you've got kind of the, so the other big thing that Aristotle talks about, which I just really find interesting, is the the distinction between virtue and continence and incontinence and viciousness. So you can have someone who is like fully vicious. They just engage in every bad impulse they ever have. You've got the incontinent person who knows the right thing to do, but they just like don't, they, they're like impulsive. They like keep doing the wrong thing. You've got the continent person who chooses the right thing, but doesn't really want to. So they're like still building the habit and the desire. Mm. And then the virtuous person actually wants the good thing. So there's this whole like movement through kind of, at least as a psychologist, I think about it as movement, but maybe he didn't, I don't know. Oh, he would have. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Aristotle, those guys were all about teleology, all about end goals, and they had very defined ideas on what was the good and... So right, he would definitely exactly. call it progress movement. Yeah. And so, so what you're describing when like, I'm working really hard to do it, we could kind of ascribe that to sort of a, a continent version of yeah. behavior. And then once it becomes my habit, once it becomes my skill, I don't have to think about so much. Now I'm into what we would maybe consider the virtue territory, which is really interesting. I do think. Which is awesome. And just a little inside baseball, it makes sense that the positive psychology people are into virtues and are into mm-hmm. mindfulness. It's all, that's right. the, that's the connective thread, right? Sure. Is that you're, you're building, you're building these habits based on strengths, based on, you know, basically these, that you're preventing disease by enhancing uh, mm-hmm. your functionality, Right. At any point you can, basically, yeah. as you move toward the good life. Okay. Um, so there's a few things I, I want to get to about forgiveness. And so apologies if this gets a little bit jumbled and I, less organic than most of our conversation. Okay. Which has We've been, kind of been all over the place. I yeah. know. It's been so fun. fun. I genuinely yeah. don't know if listeners will experience me as being weird today or normal. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's exciting to find out. <laughs> Some leave it. Leave me a note in the comments. Okay. But there is a power lens or angle to forgiveness to where if I've got a lot of power, if I have a lot more power than someone, then they're going to be incentivized in some sense to forgive me, to grease the wheels because Mm -hmm. it matters for their livelihood or well-being that like we're on good terms. Like how far can that get before we're just not dealing with forgiveness anymore? We're just dealing with like, I just have to be nice to my boss or, you know, whatever. Like, 
it doesn't, I don't know. They're, I'm not exactly sure how to ask it. It's good. I'll talk and you can tell me if I'm hitting what you're trying to get at. So, you know, I think there's a distinction between, I I can be nice to somebody that I'm actually still quite angry with, right? Right. I can, I can have good social capital with someone with whom I do not trust. I do not think that they have my best interests at heart. I'm not going to right like that. I can still be bitter towards them and resentful. Uh, and, and it's hard, (laughs) it's difficult. It can be very painful to live in that space of incongruence, uh, but folks do it and they do it all the time, actually probably far more often than than we know or would want them to. I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, there seems to be movement towards like, but I need to be honest about my feelings. I think some generations would never have even thought that that was an important thing to think about or didn't even, that wouldn't have even made sense. Like, what do you mean? You just do what you need to do in the context that you're in. It doesn't matter how you feel about your boss. Like they're your boss. You just do the things you need to do on your job. Right. So there's a there's some cultural things that are at play there. But I absolutely receive your point that when someone is in a position of power, I can feel like I have to forgive them or I'm supposed to forgive them. And that can be used in a manipulative way, I think, which is why I think anyone's I think asking for forgiveness is probably an apology is really important. Some acts of restitution are really important, but demanding forgiveness is always a huge red flag to me. Uh, That's really bad news. So, yeah. Well, that leads into my next question, which is like, we're also watching this show for all mankind. Apparently we're on like an Apple TV plus kick and there's a character without giving anything away who is like, a, well, this might give something away. Skip ahead, <laughs> skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. Who's like a former Nazi war criminal. Mm-hmm. And he he's trying to reconnect with a character who he sort of helped raise. It's like his buddy's daughter. And they were both these German scientists during the war, uh, during World War II. And he said, he quotes to her the Bible. He quotes, Jesus mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. you know, forgive them. He does the whole thing. Yeah. No, 70 times seven it makes me, it made me think of something that I was already thinking about asking you anyway, though, which is just like, there is the sheer fact that it's so easy for a Christian abuser to quote that passage. Yeah. Is that just like hazards of the, of the territory? Is it just baked in? Is there nothing to be done about that? I don't know. How do you think about the use of like that, that passage in, in ways like that? Yeah, I think if you, so I'll I'll say a couple of things. I would say, you know, if someone is using a scripture to manipulate or coerce someone, particularly for a behavior towards themselves, that's always, that, that to me is very suspect. If someone else is saying to you, right, like you've been forgiven, like, have you thought about forgiving that person? Like, that's one thing. But if, if, if I've harmed you, Dan, and I say, but Dan, you know, you're supposed to forgive me. That's a whole nother dynamic that I, I put a big red X on that. That is uh, really bad news. That's using a common belief system, um, a spiritual system to try to demand a particular behavior or emotional response. And that's highly manipulative and very, very ugly. Uh, and so I would really say uh, that's that's bad news. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, those scriptures are 
taken in the whole context of scripture, right? That's our response to others in light of God's response to us. So that gives us a lot of, um, if, if you are of the Christian faith, right, that can provide a lot of impetus to move forward in that in a really healthy way. Because when I recognize, and there is some interesting psychological research that says when I recognize that I've been forgiven, it helps me to forgive others. When I see myself as offender, it is much easier for me to grant others and wish for their good positive transformation, right, as a result of their harm towards me. So so there's a lot of beauty in those scriptures, and I do believe they can be co-opted for some really, I mean, I would say nefarious purposes. It's it's interesting because it's it's kind of endemic to scripture that like I, I off the top of my head, I thought of three more that could be used in a similar way. Children, yeah. obey your parents. You who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. First Peter five. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13. And I can't help but think of that abomination of a press conference where Mike Pence quoted that in the context of the I think that was in the context of the kids in cages at the border you know, to like humanitarian crisis there, but there's just like, I don't, I don't know that you can get around it. Like if your scripture or your religious or wisdom tradition has sort of moral general rules, someone can quote them at you. (laughs) Like, like, you know, like it is kind of, it comes with the territory and then it's a matter of discernment as to like when you accept that and what kind of context you put around doing that yourself or recognize is or is not in place when someone else does it for you. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight about how the more abusive or self-serving quoting of these, of these passages or bids for forgiveness affects someone's ability to forgive Mm. at, at their own individual level to interpersonally forgive that person? Is there any, do we know anything about that? If we do, I don't, I don't know. That's an interesting question, right? There is, there is some work on kind of some doing some implicit priming and, you know, can, if we show you the justice scales compared to if we prime you with some Bible verses or some other things. So we can kind of activate different beliefs and see some in the very short term distinctions in the way people respond to offenders. But I don't know that that we've seen that lived out in like the daily lived relationship. One thing that I will say that I thought was really interesting, Dan, about what you shared is the importance of having some really thick theology or thick wisdom tradition, right? Because as you talked about those verses that could be quoted, I could think of a a paired verse that, right? Like, so children submit to your parents. Well, parents don't exacerbate your children. And when you think about don't, you know, the, the youth submit to your elders, don't look any, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Right. Right. So this is where you need sort of the robustness of a tradition to really bear you up. And, and obviously not everyone is going to have that. Uh, And even sometimes people who do not intend to be bad actors can misuse this stuff, right? That's not even getting to where we're actually intentionally misusing it. So uh, there's a lot here. Yeah. That's an interesting, that's an interesting kind of medium level, right? Of uh, let's say the pastor or small group leader or staff member or some, some sort of leader in, in within a church or Christian group context who is not trying to conserve their power or um, get themselves forgiven, for instance, maybe they're encouraging you to forgive someone else. Right. 
but the person who has offended you has not asked for forgiveness and has not apologized. And so they're quoting it like it's like a medium version of what we're talking about, where there's no ill will. Mm -hmm. It's just that the person is immature or insufficiently formed or insufficiently aware of the situation and unaware that they're unaware of it, you know, and then they like, what do you what do you think about those kind of situations where it's less obviously about a power grab or something like that? And it's more just like your aunt or the person in your Bible study or whatever, just like just being kind of clueless and and not helping the situation. How do you I don't know. What do you do in that situation around uh, specifically around forgiveness? Yeah. So I, I think when someone is unintentionally right acting in a way that isn't helpful, <laughs> then I think the most healthy way that I can see that unfolding is to say, I'm not sure you really understand everything that's going on here. If they're able to receive that, right. Yeah. If you're not able to receive that, then sometimes it's, okay, like maybe, maybe you try to have that conversation doesn't work, or you've had that conversation in some other context and you knew it didn't work with that person. And so you're like, I don't have the energy for that right now. All I can do is really put that in its proper context of understanding that that person didn't mean me ill will, but that they're not really seeing the full, the full picture here. Yeah. There's a general, you know, consensus probably within Christian theology of, around interpersonal forgiveness and, you know, with some boundaries that we've sort of talked about, generally speaking, Christians think like, yeah, forgiveness is important. God forgives us. We have, we are to forgive each other. Uh, We are basically at at least if you put some architecture around, as long as they're asking for forgiveness and they're, they're actually, we're not saying be a doormat, but there are people who are not Christians or maybe who are, Christians, but disagree on this and don't think forgiveness is that important. What's your read on the empirical literature on forgiveness? Does it, does it essentially back up the Christian position? Is it critical of, of the Christian consensus in some ways? Like, what do you, what do you think, what do you see there in the literature? Yeah, I think there, so I think one important thing I want to say, and then I'll answer your question is I, I'm not sure that apologies are a requirement for forgiveness Mm. um, or even, even what we might say is repentance. Like that person might not change and I might still choose to forgive them. And I think the empirical literature would say that on the whole, that's probably going to be better for you. Yeah. Why? It, there, there was a, we kind of sometimes, this is where the, uh, the empirical literature started with forgiveness was sort of a therapeutic forgiveness that I forgive because it's good for me. Now we can argue about whether that's a good reason to forgive. And I I have some opinions about that, but, but there is a lot of literature that would say physiologically, it's better for you. Your nervous system is more calm. You're going to have less negative emotion. You're going to have more positive emotion. You're going to be um, less bound up, right? With like being ruminative. And that takes a lot of cognitive resources, right? There's a lot of pieces that would say that that being forgiving and it's going to be on the whole and balance, probably better for your relationships, other relationships, not just the relationship that you were harmed in. So uh, on, on balance, on average, a forgiving response is a healthy response. And now are there situations and contexts within which that might not be true? Sure. Depends on what we're measuring, right? So there's some interesting research that was done by McNulty and Finchon that looked at how 
if abused, abused women, right, uh, are more forgiving or report that they're more forgiving, you could argue about whether this is true forgiveness, right. they report that they're more forgiving towards their uh, partners, then those partners are more likely to abuse again in the future, right? So may, is it possible in some relationships, having a situation where you let go of resentment and avoidance and wish good things for someone might provide a weak boundary and then they might re-offend? Yes. That is right. possible, right? So that's where we get kind of sticky in terms of how do you how do you navigate that well? But there is a lot of evidence that would say on average, forgiving people in the individual circumstances and on average having a more what we call sort of forgiving personality is beneficial for folks on a health context and on a psychological well-being context. And in that basic context, like exempting these more sticky situations where mm -hmm. like it, it might encourage domestic abuse or something um, for, for the other situations, like, and what's the alternative? Like, what are you, if you're choosing forgiveness as opposed to what? Yeah. Usually we're looking at folks who are continuing to ruminate or uh, hold on to negative emotion in the experimental studies. We're often looking at, uh, grudge holding as sort of a, a comparison or, mm -hmm. but, but we've also looked at things like using compassionate reappraisal compared to distraction, right? So those are different cognitive tactics yeah. towards a harm, right? I can reappraise the situation. I can reappraise you, the, the harm doer, or I can just say, eh, I'm going to, I'm going to think about something else. I'm not even going to give that any more attention. And there are differential sorts of impacts on those two things. Now, I don't know that we've seen those unfold long-term over kind of, you know, that's the tactic we use to try to help you deal with the situation. And, you know, two years out, what's the difference, but in the short term, there are some some differences. But I'm realizing too, that like, it is, it is a process, right? Like the kind of, you know, just, just even calling it like compassionate reappraisal, like that indicates to me that this is basically like a process that somebody has devised and, and sort of coined the term. Mm -hmm. And there are probably many steps in it. And it's work that you do it when, when people, you know, now it's become almost a meme saying like, I'm doing the work. But like there, you know, real therapy is work. It is, it, it takes time. There are multiple steps to it. It is, you, you, usually you do it habitually. You try to make some sort of habit out of it. So it's, there is a sense in which there can be a kind of a cheap forgiveness mm -hmm. versus a, a robust or a costly forgiveness that at least costs you time and energy. Yeah. Right. So can you just say a little bit about that? Like what kind of work is involved in, in this kind of forgiveness that you're talking about? So the work, the empirical literature on forgiveness would, would often center empathy as kind of a really key component for that. So mm -hmm. part of working to forgive someone is about being able to take on that perspective of the, the person who has harmed you, yeah. um, which is partially why seeing myself as an offender helps me identify right with the person who has offended me. It allows me to see, yeah, you, re you really did mess up and, you know, I'm not giving you an excuse, but I am understanding how that could happen, right? How you could choose the wrong thing, how you could right fill, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so empathy seems to be a really 
key component and a lot of the intervention literature that's that's done and exists around forgiveness involves empathic perspective taking so really being able to value the humanity of a person to not totalize them in terms of their offense right to really hold on to the fact that they are a person. Um, if you have a Christian tradition behind you, they're made in God's image. If you have right. other sorts of traditions, you see them as one with all humanity and you're all connected anyway, right? Like there are ways to kind of do that work of less separation, right? Honestly. So the, the more robust or costly version of forgiveness involves kind of really putting on empathy towards my offender. Um, and then it's that intentional commitment towards maintaining that stance because that's hard to do, right? Um, it can be easy to kind of flip back into the aggrieved position to go back to where we started. Uh, and so there's, there's com- committing to that. And you know, uh, Worthington's approach, the the REACH model for forgiveness would begin with recalling the hurt. That's the R, right? He's got a fancy acronym. So, so this is the processing through the emotion. If you don't know what you need to forgive, how do you get there? So there's the actual kind of taking the time to say, this is what happened. This is why it was wrong. This is what the person did, right? We're not going to gloss over that part. We're not going to move so fast, to forgiveness that we don't really have a good understanding of what we are forgiving. Lindsay, I think I have to, I got to go through this process. I think that we full circle. Yeah. I wonder if what I need to do is like itemize all these things I'm angry about from, you know, white evangelicalism and, and any individual people in my life and like, go through something like that reach process and like really sit with it, process it, journal it, maybe talk to a buddy about each one and then go through the other four, which I've seen it before, but I forget what they are now. Yeah. You're going to recall the hurt, empathize or engage in empathy. Ooh, what's the A? I'm always thinking accept because of acceptance and commitment therapy, but it might not be accept. Shoot. What's well, fine. You don't have to. Well, people can look it up. <laughs> I'm Just so embarrassed. Google reach forgiveness. Reach forgiveness model. <laughs> Sorry, Ev, if you're listening. Um, commit, right? And then hold on to, right? Is sort of a yeah. H. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Wow. I mean, I think that that's what I probably what I need to do. And just make sure, though, that since I have noticed that I'm avoiding the anger, mm-hmm. uh, maybe make sure to spend sufficient time on R and yeah. not shortchange that and only go on to empathy when I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, but I, wow, I think I'm, I've given myself some therapy homework here. Thank you. I love that. I do want to, do you have a few more minutes? Sure. I want to just end on trauma because, mm-hmm. you know, my own work is, uh, budding mm-hmm. work is around spiritual harm and abuse, which then leads to spiritual or religious trauma for, for people and forgiveness and trauma. I know you're, you also have trauma training. It's already come up specific. That's like a specific instance where forgiveness is, I don't know, maybe a bit more fraught. It's more complicated. There are a few more moving parts than, you yeah. know, simply, I don't know, something that doesn't rise, rise to the level of abuse or something that has not yeah. deprived someone of their religious community or, you know, whatever, right. uh, or, or other forms of, of abuse. So how do you think specifically about forgiveness in the context of trauma? Any, anything that might be different than what we've spoken about thus far? I think for folks who have been through trauma that recalling the hurt is particularly important because 
often what's involved in trauma is a grooming or reshaping of understanding of reality. And so a, a truly traumatic, most, a lot of them, a lot of traumatic events are going to involve kind of this, um, the abuser actually shaping the perception of reality for the person who has been through the trauma. And so some of what needs to happen is just reordering the world a little bit and allowing for that reorder then to shape the way you see the hurt and the, and the harm. And I think for folks who have been traumatized, we should really be careful about the speed at which we expect these things to happen. Right. Um, we can value them. We can think they're good. We can want people to, to move through the process because we think it's good spiritually, because we think it's good psychologically, physically, but you can do a lot of re-traumatizing and a lot of harm if what you do is try to rush people through a process that isn't isn't where they're at, right? There's some, you know, there's this that interesting trauma literature. It's 20 years old now, right? But the, when we tried to make everybody sit down and talk about their traumatic experience, that hurt some people because that wasn't the way that they weren't there yet, that or they didn't ever need that. And so by forcing them to go through it, we could we can hurt people just by trying to do what we think is best practice. So allowing folks to be in the driver's seat of that process, I think is even more important when we're talking about some of these really egregious harms and, and to not, to be able to sit with that with people, I guess, is the biggest thing, like to, to be able to sit in the hurt and the pain of that and not have to rush people along to resolve our own, right? Negative emotion around it, which I think is often like maybe that's Aunt Sally or whoever the aunt was, right? Like she's uncomfortable because this is hard for you. And so oh, yeah. come on, let's make it happen. But really that that's for her, not for you. And so how can we do for people who have been traumatized, for people who have been harmed in this way, what is best for them? How can they be the, the agent in their own their own world? Yeah. How can we be a non-anxious presence for them so that they can do that without needing to please us or manage our anxiety during their process? I'm I'm like, I'm like laser focused on that idea these days. And I'm wanting to do a whole episode on non-anxious presence and just the power of that and what, what we know from the research and. Can we not put a condition of worth on someone forgiving someone else? Right. Can we have that unconditional positive regard for someone else, even if they never get there, even if that's not what they're living out in their life. It's really, honestly, that non-anxious presence is very counterintuitive to certain Christian worldviews mm-hmm. where it's like, no, no, no. My job, again, back to the infinite light switch. Exactly. My job is to maximize turned on light switches. That's right. That's, that's my whole gig here. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to sit with your feelings. Like, you need to pray the prayer and I'm on to the next. Like, that's my whole goal. I'm a soldier. Mm -hmm. I'm basically a canvasser for the Lord, you know, while I'm on the earth. And, um, and that really, that's in a lot of natural tension. Well, we're, we're out of time. Very great place there to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Luna. And do you know, do you know Dr. Luna or Dr. Root Luna? Root Luna, the whole thing. Yeah. Dr. Root Luna. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. I, we did, we did kind of go wild and willy nilly, but I, I felt like it was very fun. And it was circuitous, but I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Dan. Great.
Big thanks to Dr. Lindsay Root Luna for joining me today on this, uh, <laughs> for this one, one heck of a conversation. Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm excited to listen back in a different mindset where I am less therapeutically activated. At any rate, I've got links to her faculty page as well as a, a nice PDF of that reach model of forgiveness that I will, I believe, myself be uh, integrating into my journaling and therapy practice here coming up. Uh, journaling such as it is, pretty pretty rare, but I'm going to try and increase it for this very purpose. Let's see what my therapist thinks about that next week. Anyway, uh, Josh Gilbert edited this conversation. He's always available for more editing work, and his email is in the show notes. And of course, you can become a patron and have access to those great conversations between Tony Jones and I about breaking down the Mars Hill podcast, as well as this most recent conversation with Josh Carlos around Christian humor and meme making. (laughs) I always love how meme making sounds like meaning making. Uh, and you have to be very careful with your pronunciation. Anyway, I will see you guys next week. Thank you again for joining me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.